Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into a very difficult passage in Hebrews chapter 6. So let's, let's pray together as we get started. Father, thank you for what it means to gather as part of the church, that we come and we have conversations, we try to encourage one another, we sing together, we pray together. And Father, as we look at your word, uh, these verses that we look at today, uh, they're so controversial, they're, they're difficult to understand at times, but God, the message, what, what is being communicated through your word this morning is so powerful and, and so important. And so Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open, help us to respond however you're leading us to respond. And Father, I pray that there's somebody here this morning and they've never been saved, they never experienced that forgiveness of sins, they've never followed through with baptism, they know they need to connect with the church and it's been a long time since they've made that connection. God, I pray that they would respond to your work in their lives this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So one day, there was a farmer who went out to sow seed. Some of that seed fell along a path, and immediately the birds came and ate up the seed. Other seed fell on rocky ground, and so the plants grew up quickly, but there was no root, there was no substance to the plant, so as soon as the sun came out, the sun scorched those plants, and and they were burned up and died. There was other seed that fell in an area where those plants were able to grow, but they grew up around thorns and weeds and thistles. And so as the plants grew up, those thorns and thistles choked out the good plants, and they didn't produce any grain. They didn't produce any produce for the farmer. And then finally, there was a fourth group of seed that when the farmer sent the seed out, it went into good soil. And those plants were healthy. They had roots, and they grew up, and they produced grain and fruit 30 times, 60 times, 100 times more than was expected. That first group of seed that fell along the path is like when the word of God is proclaimed to someone, when the gospel is proclaimed, when someone comes into a church service or goes to Falls Creek or a friend tells them about Jesus, and the word falls on that person's life and immediately the enemy Satan comes and takes that word away. The second bit of seed that went out and fell on the rocky ground is like when someone receives the word of God, they receive the good news about Jesus, and it grows quickly in their life with joy. They are excited about what they hear, and they begin to respond, but there's no root. There's no depth to it, and so as soon as life gets hard, as soon as a friend at school makes fun of them, as soon as a family member or coworker turns on them, as soon as trouble comes, It's scorched and burned up, and there's no more growth. The third group of seed that goes on the good ground, but as it begins to grow, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire to chase everything else in life that looks better than Jesus begins to come in, and it chokes out that word. It chokes out that gospel because everything else looks more fun, looks better than Jesus. The fourth group is when that seed falls on good soil and that soil receives rain and there's roots to those plants and they grow up and they begin to produce fruit that shows there's life here. There's something going on. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 says here at the beginning of this chapter, Therefore, 
let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Now this passage, if your Bible is one of the Bibles that has headings, like subheadings, every few verses you'll get like a bold-faced heading that'll tell you what the next group of verses is about, there's a good chance you will not get a new subheading at the beginning of chapter 6. It just keeps going from the end of chapter 5. There's a message going here, and the big idea behind it is it's all about pressing on to maturity. So starting out with faith and then pressing on, continuing to maturity. I said it last week, and I want to say it again. The Christian life is about childlike faith, but not childish faith. So we, in the Christian faith, always have childlike faith. We are always trusting in Jesus. But we are not meant to be childish. We don't stay in those early stages. We grow in our faith. We continue to follow after the Lord. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ. Make note of this. Leave here does not mean abandon or do away with. It just means we're not going to remain at that point. That foundational element to your life, you're meant to grow from that. That's the foundation of what you start with. You leave behind baby food, okay? Well, hopefully you do. <laughs> hopefully you do. You leave behind baby food. Some of that baby food, you know, when you're testing it out on your kids and you just can't help it, like you've got you've to try it. Some of it's okay and some of it is so bad. Uh, I almost didn't survive a vacation Bible school skit on stage one time because we, we were given these different packages, those pouches of baby food to eat as a, as a skit. Probably the closest I've been to not surviving uh, a skit. Like I, I, my stomach still hurts thinking about that. So you leave behind baby food. Like you don't stay there, but it's the foundation. It's what you have at the beginning, and then you're moving on to something else. So there's a foundation that's meant to move on to something else. What is that foundation? Well, look at the middle of verse, verse 1. It'll tell you. What's the foundation? Well, don't lay again a foundation of repentance from dead, dead works and of faith toward God. Going on to verse 2, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The author says here, these are the foundational elements of the Christian life. And you look at those and you think, man, if that's the foundation, I've got some work to do. <laughs> like those, those are the things that you want to learn in kindergarten and in, in first grade. Like these are the foundations of, of the faith. And when I look at those phrases there, I really think they're grouped in twos to help us understand how our Christian faith works. So the first two, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Usually when that phrasing is used in ancient literature about repentance from dead works, what it refers to is repentance from idols. Repentance from giving your devotion or giving your life to something that is ultimately dead and will lead to death. So re repentance from dead works is what every one of us does at some point in our life, we pray, when we turn from sin we turn from devoting our life to something that is not worth devoting our life to, that's dead and going to lead to death, and we repent of that, and we turn toward what? Faith toward God. When Jesus came, preaching the gospel, what was at the core of Jesus' message when the kingdom of God comes? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. If you want to know what's at the foundation of the Christian faith, repent, turn away from living for something that's not worth your life, and turn toward the God who created you and who is judge over all. That that's at the core of it. 
And then in the middle here, you have this idea at the foundation of the Christian faith is instruction about washings and laying on of hands. Now, I just got to be honest with you. Uh, these two phrases are really hard to understand what exactly the author was going for. Like, what, what was he aiming for with these phrases? The point seems to be that these phrases give a visible representation to your connection with the Christian community. So to be baptized, to participate in these washings, and to have the laying on of hands that was often associated with receiving the Holy Spirit, these are markers that you've connected with the Christian community, that you've connected with the church. And so your repentance and your faith are at the foundation, and then you show that repentance, you show that faith by being baptized and being connected with the church. And so you may be here this morning, and you say, I've repented of sins, I've trusted in Jesus, but not enough people know that. I've kept that as, as a private matter. Your next step today is to say, I need to be baptized. Not to earn anything with God, not to be saved, but because when God works in our lives, it's meant to show up in our life. It's meant to be made public. It's meant to may, be made visible. You may be here this morning and say, I've been saved and I've been baptized, but I've struggled a lot with the church. Like, I struggle to connect with the church. I have baggage in my past. Who doesn't? <laughs> I've got church hurt in my past. Who doesn't? I've had all these things I've struggled with. I need to be around a group of people that can care for me. I need to get connected with the church family. This is at the foundation of the Christian faith. This is not advanced Christianity. This is not Christianity 401. This is 101. I repent. I believe. I'm baptized. I get connected to a church. And then the final two, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The reason those are at the foundation is because when you know where your life is headed, it changes everything about how you live right now. When you are at the beginning stages of your Christian faith, one of the most beautiful things you hold on to is whatever happens in my life, I know God has the future. I know he is in control in the future. And so in a world full of anxiety and uncertainty and difficulty, I have hope because of the future. So what's at the core, what's at the foundation of the Christian faith? Repentance from devoting my life to idols and faith in God, baptism and connection with the church, and eternal hope, eternal stability that changes everything about how I live right now. And what's the author saying? He's saying that's the beginning. That's the foundation of your faith. We are going to grow on to maturity from that point. Verse 3. Verse 3 has a statement here. He says, this we will do. We're not going to stay at that point. Those things are going to propel us forward. This we will do if God permits. And you might read that phrase and say, well, how would God not permit? It's phrasing that is meant to acknowledge your dependence on God. That's all the phrasing is meant to do. When it says, if God permits, it's saying the only way that I will be able to move from this beginning part of my faith onto maturity, onto all that God has me for me in the future, is if I can continue to depend on the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes what happens is a person becomes a Christian, and they, they realize the only way that I can be saved is through faith in God. I can't save myself. That's what Chris is admitting up here. That's what everybody else is admitting. I cannot fix my deepest problems. And then the moment a person is saved, they're like, oh, I got this from here on. 
oh, you most certainly don't got this from here on, okay? Like, it's, Amanda and I talk about this a lot, but it's those early stages in parenting where when they're really little and you're like, oh, these are the hardest stages in parenting. It will never get any harder than this. And then you're like, oh, narrator, they were so wrong. Like, it does get harder. Like, there is more. Like, I need the Lord more today in parenting than I ever did at the beginning, and I needed the Lord a lot then. If you are advanced in your Christian faith, and and I mean that like in a sense of years, you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been around the block a few times, you need Jesus more today than you ever have before. Like for me to move forward in my Christian life, I continue to depend upon the Lord. I need him to carry me to where all he has for me in the future. You're like, well, that's not very hard. Those are good verses. Well, just wait, okay? It gets really hard here in a second. Verse four, all right? Verse four. It says in verse 4, the reason we need to move on, the reason we got to keep pressing forward, is because it is impossible in the case of those who have dot, dot, dot. And we're going to fill in the dot, dot, dot. But here's what you need to realize, because the wording, the, the order of the wording in your Bible is going to look strange. It is impossible. It's impossible to do what? Well, that phrase is actually not completed until you get to verse 6, okay? So you're going to have to see it's impossible for something not to happen or for something to occur for a particular group of people. So what we have to figure out from these verses is what group of people is he talking about and what's impossible to happen in this situation, okay? So look at the next, look at the next verse. We're trying to figure out what's impossible and, and who's involved here. Middle of verse 4. It's impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and then verse 5, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So he's telling us about this group of people that he's giving a warning to. He's giving them a caution. What, what about this group of people? They've been enlightened their eyes have been opened. They're, they're given knowledge. They're able to understand something. They've tasted the heavenly gift, and it tastes way better than baby food. Like, they've tasted, and they, they've tasted, they've experienced the power of heaven. It, that's, that's such churchy language. Let me try to do better with that. Um, I was about to say they've, they've experienced what it is to be blessed by God, but that's still churchy language. They've just experienced good things in their life, and they realize the only reason I had this good thing is because it came from God. They, they have a recognition. They've experienced the good things of God in their life. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been around when the Holy Spirit has been at work in somebody's life. They've shared in that. They know what it is to be around that. They've tasted or experienced the goodness of the Word of God. When you open up your Bible— and you read a verse, and you think, I know I've read that before, but I've never seen that before. Like, that verse hit me in a way that it's never hit me before. God's word is good. I want to receive that. They receive that. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. They realize that this messed up world is not going to be messed up forever, that there is good things coming for the people of God. They've they've experienced those things. And let me just say to all of my grammar friends in the room, of which there are like eight of us, but I know you guys because you tell me about it, um, the people who love grammar, these are all what we call in grammar participles. And some of you hear participle and you're like, oh, it's connected to the main verb in some way. And some of you hear participles and you're like, I'd like a popsicle. Like, that sounds good. So uh, 
I get that. Participles and popsicles for some people, participles and deep theological truth for others. I, I'm totally with you, okay, on that. But this, this is a set of participles, and the key is, even if you don't care about participles, here's the key. Every one of these phrases is intentionally parallel. In other words, you're supposed to think about the same group of people who's experienced this. When you look at that list, that's a good list, right? You look at that list and you think, man, that, that person must be a Christian. Verse 6. Verse 6. It's impossible for someone who has done all those things, verse 6, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. You've been enlightened. Your eyes are open to the truth about, about God. You've tasted how good God can be. You've shared in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been around when the Spirit of God was moving. You've tasted how good the Word of God could be. You've tasted the fact that this world may not be messed up forever, and then you've fallen away. And you're like, okay, show us how we're going to navigate around this. You don't navigate around this. It is an absolutely same parallel statement of the ones that came before. Falling away is meant to connect with all of those phrases that came before. They're, they're all parallel. There's no distinction. It just runs right into the next word and having fallen away. Falling away, what does that mean? Very simply, it just means that you've rejected Christ. That you've fallen away from the path that leads to salvation. You've fallen away from the path of faith. That you've, you've rejected Christ. And in that case, what's the reality? That it's impossible to restore that person again to repentance. Why? Why can you not be restored to repentance if you've experienced all these good things and then you've rejected Christ? Because without Christ, there is no foundation for repentance. The person who has fallen away, the person who has rejected Christ, what pathway is there back to repentance if you've cut off the very source of that salvation in the first place? So if you've rejected Christ, but you said, I'd like to go back and I'd like to start again without Christ, what start is there at that point? You've cut yourself off from the very hope of salvation and forgiveness in the very first place. And then look at the next verse, because it tells you what kind of actions this person is doing. The person who has fallen away, what are they doing? They are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm, and they are holding him up to contempt. Now again, just a very small piece of grammar here. All of those words that were mentioned beforehand describing the person who's experienced these good things and fallen away, those words are given in a very general way. These two words right here, crucifying again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt, those words are intentionally given in an ongoing action sort of way. So those words speak of someone who is rejecting Christ, who is cutting themselves off from Christ, who uh, is dishonoring Christ, and this is true of their life right now. And if that's true of your life right now, it would be impossible to restore that person to repentance because they cut themselves off from Christ. They've, they've rejected him. And if you say, well, this would never happen. Oh my goodness, it does happen. I mean, think about friends that, that trusted in Jesus when they were at Vacation Bible School or they had a powerful experience at Falls Creek or they became a Christian when they were at college or a young adult. 
And then you look at their life years later, and they've cut, completely cut themselves off from Christ. They completely rejected the way of Jesus, sometimes even to the point of making fun of faith, making fun of those who are connected to the church, holding up Christ as if he is not Lord and Savior uh, of all things. These are hard verses. And the, and the author here, the, the preacher, knows they're hard verses because look at what he does next. He tells a little parable to help you understand what's going on. Verse 7. It says in verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, this land receives a blessing from God. I don't know this for sure, but I am pretty certain that this concept in Hebrews chapter 6 is connected to Jesus' parable of the so- soils that I told at the beginning. I think you can find some really important connections between, between those two points. So you have land, people, that receive the rain, they receive the word of God, they receive the gospel, and they produce a crop. And what happens to that person? They receive a blessing from God. Verse 8, but if that land receives rain and it bears thorns and thistles instead of producing a good crop, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That word worthless up there is really fascinating. The word worthless there means something that appears to be one thing when it's actually another. It can look like something, but it's not actually the real thing. Um, those of you who have been duped by counterfeit money, uh, this is that kind of idea. Like it looked like the real thing, but it's worthless because it's not actually the real thing. And so the only thing it is, it's near to being cursed and to be burned. And if you've tracked it all with these verses, you should have some questions. <laughs> um, and these verses were part of the PhD dissertation that I did for the doctoral program. And let me tell you, I got some questions, okay? Like, I stand here before you as someone who has questions of, about these verses. Let me show you some different views, some different ways that people make sense of these verses. And I'll tell you where I land. I'll just go ahead and give that away here in a second. I'll tell you where I land. And I'll tell you that no matter where you land, the purpose of the verses, I think, stays the same. Okay, so here's some different verses. I mean, some different views on this passage. There's one group of people who see these verses as a hypothetical warning, meaning it's a severe warning. Don't receive the gospel. Don't receive the word of God and then fall away from it because that would be really bad. But that cannot actually ever happen, so it wouldn't really ever happen to anybody. So you need to worry about it, but not worry about it so much. I'm kind of being sarcastic, so you can tell I don't take number one. All right, so, um, but there are a lot of people who do. They read these verses as the parent or, or the coach or the teacher who's always threatening punishment but never following through with the punishment. And they hope that they got their bluff in enough that every time they threaten a warning, they give a warning that the people will respond to that. Number two is the view that you can be saved, that you can be in Christ, and then you can fall away, you can reject him, and you can lose that salvation. And there's two forms of number two. One says that when you lose your salvation, that's it. There's no hope of, of return, and they take these verses very directly. There's another form of this, losing your salvation, that says when that happens to you, you can be saved again, and then lose it again, 
and be saved again. And if you came from that kind of, of church background, you can know there's not a lot of stability found in that. There's, there's not, not a lot of hope because you never know am I in or out. Like maybe I'm in today, maybe I'm out next week. I, I'm going back and forth. The third view is the view that what is happening here is the genuineness of our faith is being revealed. It's being revealed whether or not a person truly was a Christian to begin with. And if I had to pick an option up here, if I had to say this is where I land, number three is where I land. So number three is based on a couple of, of foundations. It's based on the reality that once you are saved, once you are in Christ, that you've been adopted by God, made part of his family, that can never change. You cannot be snatched out of the hand of the Lord. That once you are in Christ, you are in him for all of eternity. And at the same time, this view says there are a lot of people, I say a lot, I want to I be careful with saying that. There are people who look like they're a Christian, who have every appearance of being a Christian, who have maybe even responded to an altar call, maybe even been baptized, maybe even been deeply involved in a church, but they were never truly saved. They, they had never been made right with God through Jesus, and eventually that person turns away from Christ. Eventually that person turns away from faith. Now, let's be clear, let's be clear, that's not ultimately our judgment to make. That's the Lord's judgment, but we are able to see indicators, we're all able to see signs of whether or not that person is, is moving toward faith, whether that person is continuing to be, to be in Christ. Now, the original preacher of this sermon, the author of Hebrews, he's laid out a really harsh warning because he's looking out at his congregation and he's giving them this warning. And so watch what he does in verse 9, because next week, we're going to take 9 through 20 at the end of chapter 6, but watch what he does in, in verse 9, because you might be wondering, man, is there any hope? <laughs> like, is there any certainty? What do, what do I do with this? Well, in, in verse 9 it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, in your case, friends, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. <laughs> so he's just laid out this very stern warning of being careful that you experience the things of God and then be careful that you don't turn away. And then he looks out at his friends and says, I know that was really hard to hear, but in your case, friends, I've got high hopes for better things. Like, I believe I see signs in your life that you're moving on toward salvation. You're moving on toward the Lord. Do preachers worry? Do pastors worry about their church? All the time. Um, I'm just kind of a naturally a, a good worrier, so I have a step up on most pastors in this. Like, I worry naturally really well, and so when I think about the church, I worry about finances. I worry about whether we're going to have enough volunteers. I worry about whether anybody's going to show up on Sunday. <laughs> I worry about whether we have any good plans for, for the future. And friends, I say this with complete sincerity. I worry about you. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about being shipwrecked, he talks about being hungry, he talks about being cold, he talks about being in prison, and he gets to the very end of this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, oh yeah, I am overburdened with anxiety for the churches. Freeze me out, <laughs> imprison me, shipwreck me. What really bothers me is I worry about you. I, I love you and I care for you and want to provide oversight on you. And so I look at a church like this, I look at a, a congregation like this, and one of the things that terrifies you is, is you preach the word of God, 
you call people to repentance, you call people to follow Jesus, and you look at a group and think, will they continue to do that? Will they continue to stay the course? Will they continue to move after the things of faith? Or will there be people in my church that will begin to go the other direction, who will cut themselves off from Christ, who will see no, no importance of being connected to the things of faith? And man, that burdens me. Like, that, that burdens me deeply. So what, what do we do about it? Here's the first thing we do about it. When you become a part of this church, when you become a member of this church, the pastors, we get together regularly to pray through our membership list because we want to keep oversight over your soul. We want to know that you are continuing to fall after Jesus. We look at your life and we say, do we see signs that that person is living in faith, that that person continues to go after the Lord? And we're going to do everything we can to encourage you to do that. Connect with the church where they will encourage you to continue to follow Jesus. Um, connect with the church where you'll have people around you who will say, I want to see God at work in your life. I, w- I want to help you keep going. Next week we'll talk about some of those things that help us keep going. But what these verses do for us this morning is they allow us to ask this question. If I were to die today, if, if today was the last day of my life. What is my eternal hope? So if my life was finished after today, we have no guarantee for tomorrow. Have I put my faith in Christ? Is he the foundation of my life? Or am I falling away? Am I going away from, if someone looked at my life, is there fruit that says God is at work in my life? Is there fruit that says I am a person of faith? If you're here this morning, I cannot say this clearly enough. If you are here this morning and you do not have hope for eternity, you do not know the answer to the question, what would happen if I died today? The most important thing you can do is talk to someone. Respond in faith. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Talk to someone after this service that because of what Jesus has done for you, you can know that you have eternal life. There's a second side to that, though. There's a good chance that you will continue to live after today, Lord willing. And so if I wake up tomorrow, what's my calling? What am I supposed to do? And bear fruit and stay the course. (laughs) Live a life that says, I'm going to live for Jesus, and I'm going to just keep following after him. Day after day, week after week, month after month, I'm going to keep my life focused on the things of Jesus. I'm going to live in a community, under pastors, alongside brothers and sisters that keep me going in that direction, and I'm going to remember the foundation of my life. Repentance and faith, connection to the church, and eternal hope. And so if you're here this morning and you need to be saved, you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, here in just a minute you're going to have a chance to respond, and if you're not ready to respond now, we will talk to you after the service. If you're here this morning, you need to be baptized. Get connected to the church. We're going to tell you more about how you can do that. If you're here this morning and you know you've been faking it for a long time, your life looks like you're a Christian, you know how to play the church game, but you know deep down that your life is not devoted to Jesus, don't live another day faking it like that. Turn to him. Put put your life in his hands because he is able to hold you. He is able to carry you into eternity. Would you pray with me? Bow your heads with me.
Father, when we see verses like this in the Bible, it's easy to be overwhelmed with fear and doubt. God, I know in a room like this, there are probably people who struggle with doubting their salvation, whether or not they've ever truly been saved. And God, I pray that they would know that we don't earn our own salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves that comes ultimately through Christ. And God, that we would find hope in who Jesus is and what he's done. And God, I pray that we would understand the importance of surrounding ourselves with people who will keep us going. God, I pray for the teenagers here this morning. God, I pray for our college students and young adults. They live in a world where they look around and it looks like so many people are turning away from Jesus. Their friends who came to faith at Falls Creek, their friends who they know previously were connected to church and want nothing to do with Jesus now. God, that's hard. It's hard to stay focused. God, I pray that they would continue to stay the course. God, I pray for our adults in the room as they pray for kids and grandkids, as they pray for friends, as they think about what it is to stay focused on the things of the Lord. God, help us to be a church that continues to look to Jesus, to know that he is our eternal hope. And Father, I pray if there's somebody here this morning and they came in this room and they have never been saved, they do not know what would happen ultimately if they were to die today. God, I pray that they would turn and find salvation and hope in Christ this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.